Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. human being is prone to addiction. It seems that every one of our basic needs for love, food, or happiness can be converted into a destructive loop. What we once did for pleasure can end up trapping and isolating us from the rest of the world. In the first half of our episode, we speak with Stanton Peel, one of the field's pioneer researchers, about his new book, Recover, Stop Thinking Like an Addict, and Reclaim Your Life with the Perfect Program. We talk about the patterns of addiction in society and ways to recover. Then, in the second part of our show today, we speak with Charles Eisenstein about his new book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. And we talk to Charles about his views on the addictive patterns in our civilization and how the story that our civilization is addicted to is facing a crisis moment and coming to an end. This is episode number 74. I'm Seth Moserkatz. And I'm Justin Ritchie. And this is The Extra Environmentalist. My book, Recover, begins with a meth freak. And part of me was afraid to use that because I'm writing a book for a lot of people. And, and people think meth freaks, that's the biggest way out thing. And, you know, our friend uh, Chris Ryan interviewed Chris Hart. His research is with meth. And basically, it's like every other drug. Most people don't become addicted. It doesn't have those dire consequences that are regularly described. Most people are able to quit it. Average length of a, a smoking addiction is 24, alcohol 18, marijuana 6, meth or coke is 5. Again, remember your grandmother? If you were to say, well, why do people quit meth and coke quicker than cigarettes? You can be a cigarette addict more or less and get away with it. It's a ton of work. to. First of all, it's more obviously and quickly damaging. And it's a ton of work to be a meth addict. You have to get the stuff. You're generally not a feasible human being. So with the, with with that kind of idea, we people can get addicted to many different things, to gambling, to even to each other. People get addicted to in, in relationships. They get sucked into these relationships where they just can't live without another person. Can you talk a little bit about other kinds of ways that people get addicted? Well, let me tell you three amazing facts. But the first amazing fact is in 1975, I wrote a book called Love and Addiction, and I 
said the most common source of suicide and murder, if you ask people, is love, frustrated love relationships. There's nothing more powerful about that because it's so all-encompassing. Let's flash forward. There's a document that's very important, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders. In 2013, they released DSM-5, and the first time they recognized a non-drug addiction. Ironically, they don't use the word addiction with drugs. They have substance use disorders that are mild, moderate, or severe. And uh, the joke I always make, which is only a half joke, is, well, I guess I'll expect my Nobel Prize soon, because I, 20 years ago, said addiction is not something that's limited to drugs. And they came up with one behavioral addiction, one, after all this time, and one that they're contemplating. The one they're contemplating is gaming. The one that they say is a behavioral addiction is gambling. I read a Psychology Today blog, and I said, the seven hardest addictions to quit, the worst is love. I mean, that love addiction, that's a tough one to not... I, I, don't, I don't use the term behavioral addiction. And I say, it's funny, they justify including gambling because they say, well, it affects the same brain structure and the board structure in the brain. Such bullshit. And then they call it a behavioral addiction. I said, is it an addiction or isn't it an addiction? Why do you have a separate category for it? And then the last idea about gaming addiction, the best example, of course, that guy who did the Newtown killings, he hadn't spoken to another human being for several months. He spent all of his nights in his room playing violent video games. He didn't even talk to his mother, only emailed her. He's a human being who had lost complete contact with the world and reality, enmeshed in video games. Generally doesn't even happen with heroin addicts, that they never leave their room. He had the window shaded, you know? Mm -hmm. You could make argument that video games are far more addictive than heroin. And you know that old story, it's all in the delivery, like a joke? What makes something really addictive is how instantaneously it provides gratification. It sort of doesn't matter what it is. It's hard to be a sex addict. You kind of have to go out and get a sex partner. But it's not hard to be an internet pornography addict. Or a smartphone addict because... Smartphone, I was just going to say that. Yeah, because as soon as you look down at the screen, it's like instant gratification. There's animations, there's movement, you know, you're pressing on things, it's delivering information to you. A little bling pops up, you have that little message in your hand from your friend that says, Hi, how are you doing? And it doesn't take much effort. You can have it all the time. I mean, cigarettes are so addictive because they're such an effective delivery system. If you had to light a pipe, it's a lot of work. The Indians did a peace pipe. That wasn't a good way to be addicted. When you have a cigarette, you can pull out of your pocket, boom, light it up. When you can get immediate gratification from pornography, from video games, from your smartphone exactly right, now we're getting into real constant addiction. Well, I see people just compulsively checking their devices or, you know, compulsively sitting on the Internet, just clicking away, you know, whether it's checking email constantly or sitting there and just clicking through web pages constantly. And like, you know, there's I'm sure there's a normal side to that that's possible. But then where does it kind of bridge the gap into an addictive behavior? Well, now we're getting into a question that can even blow your mind. Are we creating an entire world of people who are circled on these electronic stimuli? Addiction is now possibly if in the norm. As you guys put it, we're in a business of creating addictions and solving addictions. Let's give everybody an electronic device, every kid a cell phone and whatever, iPhone, whatever, and then give them unlimited access to internet games and pornography. 
and then send everybody to rehab, virtually everybody to rehab. It's has somebody made this movie already? Uh, <laughs> if not, we're slowly writing the script. As soon as we started inventing technology, like people might argue that people have been addicted to books for hundreds of years, or and you know the the written word has has been something that people could be addicted to also. Addicted to the Gutenberg press. Yeah, exactly. Remember our criteria, the ease of delivery. You have to read a book. A lot of the sentences are long and complex. Lack of immediacy and flamboyance to video. Okay, how about radio then? Radio is something that people get addicted to, and that's been around for a long time as well, right? Yeah, even so, it doesn't engage your visual side for starters. I, I would say... In my mind, I date electronic addiction from television. I'd say that's where some visual things, wouldn't you agree, Seth? Visual things just are much more captivating to people. Again, with radio, you still got to make kind of an imaginative effort. So you're saying that you draw the line then at technology that involves more than two senses and specifically a visual one. Well, yes, but it's a sliding scale. How comprehensive and instantaneous is the stimuli? And radio is not that engulfing compared to... Picture a guy with a video game. That is so different than somebody listening to the radio. It's so less... An addiction, you know, I define addiction in all my books, is an engulfing experience that grows to be your main reward structure. Radio doesn't fill that bill the way... It's like that constant stimuli that you get from the video game in the button pressing and it's engaging once and all the movement on the screen, I guess that is one of the things that makes it so So addictive. the interactive nature of it adds the addiction as well. Yes. It's got all of you. You're not doing anything else when you're playing video games. You can read a book when you're listening to the radio. You can talk to people. I mean, I think the thing you guys are talking about with people with their iPhones, you're watching it. You know, you go to a restaurant, you're watching two people and one per iPhone. They're not interacting with the other person. It's totally taking you away from your life. If you'll allow me, I'm, my book, Recover, applies the concept of mindfulness. Here's my way of thinking. Uh, by the way, it comes out in February, so... Plug away. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. The whole title, while I'm at it, is Recover, Stop Thinking Like an Addict, and Reclaim Your Life. Reclaim your life if it's been coming to think of that video game with the perfect program. Perfect's an acronym, and P is pause. And it involves mindfulness, meditation, but the concept of mindfulness. My, mindfulness in Buddhism is being in the here, here and now... Mindfulness in psychology tends to mean being aware of the environment around you, like what's determining your behavior. But I, I think those two concepts work together. And you're describing the opposite of mindfulness. Addiction sort of the opposite of mindfulness. When a person's sitting there engulfed by or looking at their iPhone instead of interacting in the here and now, like they're someplace, there's a meal, they've got a date or a wife or a child, that's all not there. And so it also combines with the idea of powerlessness in AA, and it combines with the neuroscientific motion they call it a hijacked brain. How do you get yourself into the present where you're aware of what's going on around you and where you're enough in control of it that you can introduce, as imperfect, a pause so that you can make it a decision-making moment? When you're shooting those guns, you're not making decisions. You're engulfed. Uh, you're just reacting to stimuli. You're reacting to stimuli. You're t totally captivated. It, it's it's a hijacked brain because you're in you're in a hijacked experience. Mindfulness is a matter of saying to yourself, "Well, okay, what am I doing? 
you know, I feel an urge to take cocaine or to play a video game or to click on my phone. Is there some way that I can introduce a stop button here and consider whether this is what I actually want to do? Addiction is something that humans seem to be built for. Where is the biological imperative in this to be addicted to things? Why do humans, are they drawn to it? Is there some biological need for that somewhere along the line historically where humans have benefited from being addicted to things or? Well, quite the contrary. I mean, one of the reasons that works against the biological imperative is think about it. It's hard to be an alcoholic in a pre-industrial society. First of all, you can't get the alcohol. But if you're not pretty functional, you're kind of dead. What are the reasons for addiction in modern society? It's our mechanized view of ourselves and our medicalization of everything. It's our instantaneous gratification, and we have all these methods for producing it. And to some extent, addiction is a byproduct of the luxury of our lives. Anthropologists, there's a famous study by a, a man I've always kind of really loved. Who He examined a group of Indians who drank a really potent 90% alcohol. They drank it all together once a month. They all got completely drunk. Nobody ever drank other than in those ceremonies because you couldn't. There were no liquor stores. Everybody, you have to prepare the alcohol and you have to have people serving it. And if you were drunk all day, you wouldn't farm and you'd die. You wouldn't be able to sustain yourself. Addiction seems to be rather a modern invention, a byproduct of the luxury we have that you don't have to really be mindful, that you can sort of manage to get through life without putting your full focus on it. Without having to be aware of all the stimuli in your environment, if you're living as an indigenous hunter, you'd have to know, like, that's the sound of a puma coming after me, about to eat me, right? Is that part of it? Yes, exactly well put. Farming's a tough job, too, you know? You got to be ready to do it. You know, they did have those orgiastic ceremonies after the harvest, but... That's not being an alcoholic. And it wasn't every day. Yeah. yeah. You have to pay all, you, you reward yourself at the end of the growing season because you say, oh, damn, I need that. But, you know, it's a hard job and nobody wants to go back to doing that. Nobody volunteers to live in a subsistence society. And so we're faced with the, the civilization imperative. We have the ability to be addicted now. We can have that option where it really, for most of uh, human history, we couldn't. And now we have to have a way, a, a conscious strategy for not being addicted. Now that we have the technological capability of carrying around that addictive electronic device with us all the time, this is a relatively new thing. This has been in the last three or four years that these devices have become uh, cheap enough and disseminated enough through society that just everybody has them. So we're really, I guess, on the cusp of seeing what this is going to do to society. So fast forward 10 years and you got Google Glasses on your eyes where you're broadcasting you know, stimuli into your retinas, not just where you have to pick it up out of your pocket. Given your experience with uh, people who are addicted and are going through rehab, what does this do to society? Where do you see this going? Well, if pornography is addictive when it comes over your video screen, what about when you can do virtual reality pornography? That's going to be a much... <laughs> yeah, some so, people may never leave their house again. <laughs> so we, have your, so we have the guy in never left his house as it was. He was yeah. addicted to the video game of dancing. He didn't actually interact with any actual people, but he was addicted to doing dance steps. Is that... And think about it. If you have kids who are addicted to games, they don't actually learn how to deal with people. But we have a whole technology 
let's think about what we're saying. A whole technology for medicalizing addiction, developing pharmaceuticals for dealing with that, talking and realizing at the same time that addiction isn't limited to drugs. It includes gambling and gaming. And then what? It's got to get to sex and pornography. And we're developing better and better delivery techniques all the time. It suggests that addiction is the death of society. I mean, really, if you're in New York City and you're on the subway, you're saying, who knew that so many people were addicted? They don't have, um, you can't get internet reception. Thank the Lord. In the New York subway, they're working on it in San Francisco. I, I, I'm going to kill myself when that. <laughs> but if you if you walk around any college campus right now, there are at least 75 percent of the kids with their heads in their cell phones, right. or you know earbuds in, or something, or, or earbuds, they're, some sort of interaction. Playing, and, they're, they're, and in the subway, you know they're playing video or some kind of goofy game because they're not actually getting any kind of reception in those subways. When I see a person, there's still a few people to read New Yorker or a book, and I'm going, oh, thank you. some human beings left who are consuming manually, slowly, processing individual words, actual stimuli. What about the day when I enter this subway? I'm the only person who's not electronified. You know, going to be, you know, remember so, Agent of the Body Snatchers? The first one, the better one. <laughs> You're the only non-pod around, you know what I mean? Everybody else is podified. Would you say that addiction could be quantified into bad behaviors and also good behaviors? Because you can be addicted to good things. Uh, people are addicted to running, perhaps, who, who run all the time because it makes them feel really good. You get a high when you run or working out, lifting weights or doing yoga or some sort of physical activity like that, which is kind of can be considered a good Good thing sometimes. Addiction is something you become absorbed in. It, it makes you less a part of your community. It makes you less functional. So there is such a thing as exercise addiction, you know, like if you keep running, capable of dealing with your children. And the way we know that is because you're impaired in your functioning. And at some level, you're distressed by it. If you're out there running and you enjoy it, I don't feel they need my help. So the, the bad part of addiction comes when they don't like it, they don't enjoy it, and they're still doing it. Distress and impairment. Yes. That comes out of DSM. Again, I'm not, I'm not on the DSM bandwagon, but I'll work with that. Distress and impairment. That, goes, that speaks to then about the people around you. If they're telling you that what you're doing is wrong and you're, not, and, and you're still enjoying it and, and people are saying you're doing this thing, it's, it's, it's harmful to other people around you or to society, then you should stop. Well, I was going to say there, Seth, that reminds me of a lot of dialogue that happens around relationships, too, because people will get in a relationship and all of their friends will look in on it and say, that's not a good relationship. You shouldn't be in on that. And they're like, no, but I'm in that relationship and they won't see it regardless. And maybe it is bringing the person joy, but all of their friends say, you know, that's not the person for you. Get out of it. Is that kind of. I am a clinician. And if somebody tells me that my mother hates the relationship, my whole family hates the relationship, I tend to look at that as something as a clue. You know, we're getting back to Seth's love and addiction. What's an addiction with a love relationship? A person gets totally absorbed in that relationship and they neglect every other part of their life. And he made me stop seeing my family and all my friends. You, have you ever heard of that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. If somebody tells me, you know, everybody I know hates my boyfriend, I don't think that's a good sign. When I wrote Love and Addiction, I'm going to electronic book that when I finally get around to that. Love and addiction, to me, are opposites. And here's how they're opposites. Addiction constricts you and as a person, and love expands you. So, you know, I like it when somebody says, oh, 
my mother and my husband, they, they get along great. I mean, that doesn't always happen, but I count that as a, I count that in people's psychological favor. If they say my whole family hates them, I don't tell anybody to get there, but I am wondering, you know, is this a this relationship a positive part of their life? So you can't ignore the reality of your social world. Mm -hmm. I have a therapy technique. I say, well, let's get your wife involved in this because, you know, I'm going to see you a couple times. You know, you're going to see your wife for the re maybe the rest of your life, hundreds of hours. Let's get their opinion. If they're not on the same page as you, that that's a little bit of an issue. I think one uh, bridge between what we were just talking about there and some of the technology that's coming out is the changes that we see to dating culture and how people have relationships. Because when you have the ability on your smartphone, there's all of these hookup apps now that people go through and use to meet people. And what is that doing to relationships? Because I, I see some of my friends who are single and, and dating and, and everything, and it seems to me like it's really emphasized the objectification of that other person and of what they give you and turning them into basically a, a consumerist paradigm when it comes to relationships. They're basically just... I'm going to have to cheap. go and get a drink after this. It's kind of depressing. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's here's what, I mean, you've already described, so I yeah. don't have to say anything more than what you said, but here's what I think about. What about kids? Do many kids kids go out on the street and screw around like they used to? Not like out not out in the street. The kids next door are neighbors. They play, you know. God bless around. them. Yeah. It's great. That's it's a, fun to see a, them. You may have heard that that's less common in many places. The people, are, for whatever reasons, are afraid to let their kids outside. The idea that you used to hang out on your block and go out and play with the kids in your block, that's doomed. And, you know, what's it mean if people interact solely through people through you know, Facebook, is that, does that count as a relationship? It doesn't quite make it there for me. What about a whole universe where people interact through, you know, social media? Does that really count as a relate? Well, for one thing, it'll be hard to reproduce the species because I know they can do money over the internet now, but I don't think they can do sperm over the internet yet. So uh, <laughs> there's no sperm email. That's just... You have to, you're still going to have that actual yet. human contact for the species to work. So those hookup applications, at least they result, I assume, in sex. I think a worse level, again, we go back to that guy Lanza, and a lot of kids don't actually have any contact with an actual human, you know, if you call contact. And <laughs> we might mention that we're doing this interview, and Seth happens to be in Dur is that Durham, North Carolina? Yep. Here's how I deal with that in terms of addiction. Media is as constructive and positive as you utilize it to be. If you use it as an escape from life, if all you're doing is playing video games and obviously if you go out and shoot a lot of children or you don't have any actual human contact, that's a bad way to go. If you're using it as a way to communicate, to spread ideas, people are interested in your ideas. If you're using it, you know, writing a book. I'm not a Luddite. I mean, uh, gee, email's pretty convenient and emailing, you know, writing a book with somebody, even if you know them. I work with a guy named Archie Bradshaw in Boston. Attaching a file, not 10 years ago, that was a giant pain in the ass. What, are you going to FedEx a document? <laughs> and, and it takes days to get there. And and, it, and and then what do they have? They have something in hard copy, and you want them to edit it. It doesn't work. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be against media. I'm not against cell phones. I'm not against anything. 
it's an addiction when you don't have control of it and its impact on you is negative. I wanted to ask about our patterns of education and how those end up creating addictions in our society because it seems like, especially talking about the electronics and things in schools, my mom's a teacher and she tells me about how all the plans to basically improve test scores are getting more technology in the classroom, getting everybody to use iPads, et cetera. And so it seems like it just kind of perpetuates the potential to lead into addictive relationships to technology. This gets us into the whole discussion of what's drug education about. I mean, my simple I also wrote a book called Addiction Proof Your Child. The single best thing that's going to keep your child from being addicted is that you have a child who has a purpose in life, who has the skills to deal with life, and who believes that he's stronger than all the potential addictions out there. Drugs, sex. I mean, they, they're never ending. And the question is, well, how does a human being develop those things? How do you develop the ability to deal with the world, a purpose for dealing with the world, and a confidence for dealing with the world? And, you know, one way that people used to do that, it's goofy, they used to ride their bikes around and go in the woods together and get lost and get home and fight with each other and decide, you know, who's going to buy a soda. And that used to be called life. And, you know, you can't eliminate all of that from people's experience and expect them to come out as a human being that can cope with life. So, you know, I don't believe in drug education. I believe in education. If education produces competent, purposeful, then it's good education. And if it doesn't do that, it's bad education and it's addiction producing education. I have enough respect for educators to believe that they have some insight in how to do this. But, you know, and children don't seem as capable of navigating themselves through goals of the world that they face. Like the difference between having to rely on external motivation to do stuff versus having that internal comp And having the internal capability of actually completing something on your own. So we're, we're talking a little bit about trends in the United States. And one trend that we've seen over the past you know, uh, decade or so is the rise in, in marriages splitting apart. And we were talking a little bit about before about love as an addiction and the, the fact that it takes a hell of a lot of psychological willpower and strength to break out of something as powerful as a love addiction. Do you have any insight as to why marriages have been breaking up more and more frequently as time has increased, as, as we've been going along here. Now, again, uh, I don't like to defer to other experts, but, I mean, David Brooks is a conservative columnist. I vote Democratic. He points out that America is not the upper middle class. It's not the upper 1%. It's the upper maybe 10 or 20. Their marriage, their marriage rate hasn't gone down. There's two Americas. And deprived people, people who are, who are struggling to make a living or have a $10, if they're lucky, an hour job at, you know, not at McDonald's, but at Walmart, they're under such stress. Those marriages are breaking up more. They don't even have marriages now. The upper middle class in New York City is a relatively stable force. It's the divergence. It's the discrepancy between the upper and the lower that's, that's becoming one way to put it is it's most it's obviously pronounced an income, but the most distinguishing thing about the Gulf in America is actually marriage and family love. The uh, falling apart. Uh, if you read a book like uh, 
George Packer called The Unwinding, is about how hard it is for a family under stress, low-paying job. On that topic, I am constantly struck about how being in Canada, even though it's very similar to the U.S. in a lot of ways, in the U.S. there seems to be kind of this basic fear in society that I kind of knew was there when I was in the U.S. But as I moved to Canada, it's easier to see when I go back because it doesn't exist here in the same way. Now, I, this sounds good. I can't wait for this, Justin. Yeah. Yeah. So so I was just wondering if, if you kind of see the same thing and if so we're the, the, the basic fear. I don't know. It's just kind of like afraid of? I, I don't life in general, like all the things in life, the anxiety of life can you itself. Be more concrete. You mean Canadians are less anxious than Americans? I think so. I think this is what I have noticed just being here, like the general kind of either paranoia or general kind of unsettledness of uh, American culture seems to be a little bit less so in Canada. Is that is that really the case? Well, you know, uh, on the car ride over here, we're saying, you know, Canadians seem very friendly. I see a couple crazy people on the bus here, though. <laughs> there's always crazy people, And there's people, some yeah. homeless people. So, you know, you're not... We are in Vancouver. This is not exactly the woods or anything. But I, I think I know where you're coming from. Let me give you one example. That I'm very... I have three grandchildren. The oldest of which is five. They don't play outside. And you're saying, well, around here, kids play outside. Hell, my son's afraid they're going to get kidnapped. And I say, you know, they're not kidnapping that many kids. But when they do, like that kid Paul, everybody in the world knows about it. So people are living in dread of the environment, of all these things that can happen to them. And part of it's because it's so highly publicized. And everybody, the media, make, everybody knows if there's one death, everybody knows about it. But you feel people are less anxious about letting their kids take the, subway, uh, the train here, do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. I see kids on buses and, you know, just like out walking around. God bless them. I, I'm going to move go here. To, if you go back to the 1950s and 60s in America, kids are all outside playing. And there's been that gradual shift away. Do you think that Canada has not had that shift, Justin? Do you think? I think it has had that shift, but I still feel like the general just life anxiety that's kind of at a baseline that I feel in the U.S. And maybe it could just be me. Like, maybe it's just me that when I'm there for whatever reason. But it seems like no matter where I go, it kind of is there. And I hear it expressed in the way that people talk well, to each other. Well, let me put a little negative slant on that. Yeah. You're only one degree less fucked up than us. You said <laughs> you're less like that than we are, but you're somewhat like that. So you know, I'm still I'm still U.S. Uh, uh, all the way. You know, for for so many so years, I've only been here little, for four years. You're like in our tail, and you know, whatever <laughs> stupid things that we're going to do, you're not going to do them right away. But we're going to drag you down like in that cesspool, cesspool whirlpool. <laughs> So, you know, it's less it's less like that in Canada than it is in the United States, but more like it than it used to be. So we're doomed, but you're going to follow us pretty short. Yeah. Maybe doomed just slightly slower. I can't let you get away without talking about the economy because we talk a lot about the economy on our, on our show here. People of my father's age, uh, people born in, in the, the 50s and 60s, like we were just talking about those kids who grew up playing outside, have very much identified their personality and their identity around their job, about working, about being able to bring home economic benefits to their family so they can survive. And in many cases, it's become 
basically their whole their whole life you know going to work every day has become the addiction of their entire life how does that transition as they, these people get older as these people become retirees how is that going to change their mental outputs is this, is this going to be a, a large ep- epidemic that we're going to have to deal with do you feel that your father's generation was more or less psychologically secure than your generation secure in in what well they sort of feel they knew their place in the world and they were okay that things were moving along okay you know the opposite of what you know justin was just describing sir i think that my father's generation my and my parents generation had less they they wanted less from the world they wanted they they felt the world owed them less is that a good thing or a bad thing it's hard to say because when you when you think that the world owes you more you maybe are inclined to go out and get more perhaps yeah, like less entitled from a different a different level or different space in your in your head you go, you go back another generation like my grandparents who started with nothing you know who came over on a boat they they had they thought the world owed them even less than my parents did you can say what i'm going to say now about nearly every experience there's a good side to it and a bad side and i mean my work is i write books and i go around and talk about addiction which ain't a bad job you know what i mean compared to some so I wouldn't give it up. It's my life. It's a freedom to express myself. I'm really happy about it. Does it really work if we have a whole world organized around that? What's the downside of it? Well, you know, I I moved several times. I didn't grow up in one house. I don't know the same people. A lot of my cousins live in California. I didn't I don't get a pension. So there's a certain security and an anchoredness that your parents had that in some ways maybe we would all envy. And at the same time, the three of us might be pretty fortunate in that we're choosing our careers and trying to do things that really satisfy us that we wouldn't give up. So it's a kind of a yin and yang thing. I will say this overall in our society, there does seem to be a deterioration of community. There does seem to be more mental illness. I mean, I'll just... DSM-3 came out in 1980. Nobody, ADHD didn't... People had never heard of it. They used to call what they call bipolar now used to be manic depression. It was virtually indistinct. And depression rates were lower than they are now. So despite our pharmaceutical revolution... Despite how great we feel we're doing in psychiatry, we have an awful lot of more social disintegration and mental illness. So at the same time that we wouldn't give up our freedom, it's not a happy picture of where society is by looking at global mental health and economic measures. So I wanted to ask kind of to close this out is just to say if people kind of feel that they do have an addiction in their life, how do they go about getting on the path, overcoming maybe any sort of psychological malaise that they may have and getting that motivation to take it on? And then what does it feel like once you get through that addicted that addiction if you get to a point where you are a person that is free to respond to your environment without having to rely on an addiction what does that feel like well that's the goal and what it feels like but there are different there's another agency in the american government that the nida actually the national institute of drug abuse falls under they define recovery as having the freedom to make an active positive choice about your life and they have four pillars of that health purpose or work, family, community, 
And anything that you can do, I mean, the difference between my model of addiction and theirs is they say, well, it's all involved in your neurochemistry. I say that everything we've been talking about and why I like economists is you're not going to be happy. You're not going to be non-addicted unless you live a life worth living in a world that you feel is works for you. And therefore, the, you know, there's a addiction is sui generi. It's the cause of your problems, not the result of your problems. You're going to do the best when you're working on those four pillars. When you're, anything you can say is I'm focusing on a purpose in life. I'm developing, working on my relationships. I'm working on developing all these are skills and goals in the book. When you're healthy, when you're maintaining your health, those working on the major components of your life make it less likely that you're going to be addicted. It's it's a little bit of chicken and egg. You know, you have to sort of quit the addiction to be able to be healthy. And at your level that you want to talk about, everything that you can say about society that enables their family life. And we had that pessimistic thing that big meth addiction streak in America, those areas where people don't have an economic life. And so the, the, the quickest summary to say is there's no shortcut to trying to have a well-grounded society in your own life. If you're, you've got to focus on your basics, you're not going to cure your addiction unless you have a life that you feel is worth living on your part develop the skills and competencies to deal with life, you know, learning specific things that you can do well, uh, developing the ability to master your economic life. There's no getting away from those fundamentals. All the substances of abuse, whether they're opiates or cocaine or anything else, they're actually painkillers. Some of them specifically are painkillers. But physical pain and emotional pain, the suffering is experienced in the same part of the brain. So when people suffer emotional rejection, the same part of the brain will light up as if you stuck them with a knife. Addictions begin with pain and end with pain. So that all the addictions are attempts to soothe the pain. So when I work with addictions, the first question is always not why the addiction, but why the pain. You know, whether it's a sex addiction or internet or, or, or um, relationship or shopping or work addiction, these are all attempts to get away from distress. Keith Richards, the Rolling Stone guitarist, said, uh, who used to have a severe heroin habit, as you know, he said that all the contortions we go through just not to be ourselves for a few hours. Or why would somebody not want to be themselves? because they're in too much distress and too much pain. So I don't care what they tell you about genetics or any of that choices or any of that nonsense. It's always about pain. Well, the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, uh, it's got a wonderful line in it. Whatever you do, don't try and escape from your pain, but be with it. Because the, the, the attempt to escape from pain is what creates more pain. And that's the reality with addiction. But the question is, how can people with their pain well, only if they sense some compassion. So as another teacher says, only when compassion is present will people allow themselves to see the truth. So addicted people need a, a compassionate present 
which will permit them to experience their pain without having to run away from it. And all the attempts to run away, it's like another teacher says, the surest way to go to hell is to try to run away from hell. So you've got to be with that pain. You just have to be with it, but you have to have some support. And, and we live in a society that, one way or the other, is always about instant relief, quick satisfaction, distraction. In other words, we live in a culture that is based on, both economically and, and psychologically, on not uh, supporting people to be with themselves. So it's always the quick getaway. So it's very difficult to deal with addictions in a society. But yeah, it is a matter of, at some point, finding a way of being with your pain so that you can actually get to know what it's really all about. up on episode number 74 of the extra environmentalist we talk with charles eisenstein about his new book the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible Addiction or any addictive substance is a way to not feel pain or not face some painful situation. Of course, it only works temporarily. And well, well, at least on one level, our entire situation as civilized humans on this planet is a painful situation. So it's not surprising that everybody does something to cope with that, whether it's something that we would recognize outright as an addiction or something more subtle. Uh, it could be just maybe a, a thought pattern, you know, based on some spiritual teaching or something like that, that separates us from feeling what is real and present. Your new book is called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. What is this new world, and how does the story that creates it differ from that of our current world? Yeah, you know, I just got an email from somebody basically saying, who are you to say that the world should be like this and not like that? And she said, we have already too many people putting out these gee whiz versions of the future and thinking they know better than some other person what a beautiful world would look like. But actually, I'm not saying it's going to be like this or like that. When I say that I know a more beautiful world is possible, it's not that I could necessarily describe what that world would look like, you know, the political system, the economic system. I mean, I've taken a stab at that. But even sacred economics, you know, I said, this is 
maybe a step towards something, and whatever we end up with will be something that organically emerges, and it's impossible to predict in advance. And I think that that's generally true. Like, I can't say what it's going to look like, but I and, and most people I talk to have had experiences that show that there is a there there. Now, you don't know where the there is, but you know that it's there. You know there's a, a destination that the world is supposed to be more beautiful than what we've been offered as normal. And that it's possible. It's not, you know, just that we're, you know, in the veil of tears and consigned to be here until we ascend to some other realm, but that we can actually transform this one. So it's a, it's a irrational or pre-rational heart-based knowledge, but I can't describe it. Human nature has evolved over thousands and thousands of years, and the way that people deal with pain is still very similar to the way they dealt with pain thousands of years ago. There's those emotional responses, there's the anger, there's the denial. The way that people deal with it is still very, very similar. And addiction is one way that people deal with this kind of thing. Is there a way that we can shift people's mindsets away from the conditioned responses, the way that biology tells people that they are supposed to react? Is there a way to start moving it in a different direction? Addiction has its own kind of developmental process. Addictions naturally come to an end at some point, either when the addictive substance stops working or when it causes more pain than it prevents, causes more pain than it masks, or when the underlying pain is in some way healed. If, if addiction is driven by a kind of escape from, from what hurts, if we provide spaces in which people are able to feel the grief or whatever other wound is present, then the need to use addictive substances disappears. For example, people like Francis Weller who conduct grief rituals and create communities that work together over time and provide spaces to feel grief and to be held in that in community, then once the pain is, is felt, it can be cleared and it no longer operates underground, making you feel just kind of terrible all the time, you know, like this, this default state of misery or discomfort or boredom disappears. So I think that, that you know, anything that we do to make people feel safe to feel, to be themselves, is helpful. One of the threads in your book is this story of interbeing that is part of how this more beautiful world actually takes shape. Could you talk about that story of interbeing and how it differs from the current story of our world? I've talked about this so many times that I have to be careful not to just repeat myself. But basically, when I talk about a story in this sense, it's the composite of our answers to the really deep questions of life. So you might even call it a mythology. So the old story, which is actually not that old, <laughs> but what I call the old story, says that who you are is a separate being in an objective universe outside of yourself that's governed by deterministic forces full of impersonal, generic objects made of particles that were separate from each other, that we are driven by our genes to maximize self-interest. And then there's just one domain after another of separation. That who you are is this soul encased in flesh or this consciousness or this mind, you know, separate from each other, separate from the world, and so on. 
and humanity suffer from nature. And on every level, this, this story, it runs our civilization, and it's more and more obviously not working anymore, whether on a collective or personal level. So interbeing is the story that I think that we're being born into. It's a new story for us, but an ancient story on this planet. And it says, no, who you are is the totality of your relationships. Who you are is everything, every, every being out there, every relationship you have, everything happening on this planet mirrors something inside yourself. It's not separate from you. Fukushima is not separate from you. Global warming is not separate from you. Species extinction is not separate from you. Every time a species goes extinct, something in you dies too, which is why it hurts to hear about these things. And this is our true nature. So then I ask, well, what kind of civilization might be built on that story? What kind of organizations? How do you live if that's true? I'm wondering about the role of grief in human emotion. I'm wondering about why people experience that grief when there's a loss or when they feel a sense of ending or when they find that they are just feeling that desperation. I'm wondering why that grief plays such a strong role in human day-to-day life. I'm not an expert on it. I think it's just it's part of the process of moving on, I guess, development. I, I do know that if something traumatic happens, if there's a big loss, for example, and I don't grieve it, I don't feel the grief, then it still lives on inside me and bides its time and, and tries to create situations and then something might happen that's quite trivial but that will trigger an outpouring of grief so i think it's ultimately inescapable but yeah it's part of the uh, process of integrating loss and growing as a person and being real without feeling the grief for example for uh, species extinction and, and the forests that get cut down to make the parking lots and the people working in sweatshops and stuff like that, then why are you going to stop complying with that system? I, I think that, yeah, you can set up some ethical system and try to hold yourself to principles, but that's not as powerful as the kind of embodied alignment with what we're trying to achieve with ethics that, that doesn't depend on uh, kind of self-discipline and holding yourself to principles and figuring it out and all the attendant judgmentality that goes along with striving to be an ethical person and therefore kind of knowing that other people are not as ethical as you are. I, I think that when we integrate what's happening through practices like, like grief, then our alignment with a more beautiful world is much more natural. Now, you were talking about this story of interbeing a moment ago and how seeing this pain that is in the world, this ecological pain, this social pain is part of yourself. It's not this separate thing out in the world. It is all connected. And even though that resonates with me on one level, there's so many, say, like very deeply rational, hard-nosed, practical people in the world who might reject that premise entirely. Is there some sort of naivete in embracing this worldview? Or how do you talk about this to maybe people who are coming from that perspective? Yeah, that's a tricky one because uh, some people will say, 
by you know invoking something that sounds like spirituality or distracting us from the practical work at hand. Well, there's a couple of things I can say about that. One is that according to what is practical in the old story, in the story of separation, in the story of making change happen by exercising some kind of force in a way that will bring predictable results that you can make projections on. You know, first I'll do this, and then that'll happen, and then I'll make that happen, and then I'll make raise this amount of money, and I'll make an advertising campaign, and it'll have a, a direct marketing, and that'll have a 6% response rate, and the average donation will be this much, and that's Like, all of that stuff, that whole way of doing things isn't working. And you look at the, the situation on this planet, what has to happen in order to have a livable planet in 100 years, or even, like, planet worth living on, you know, even if you're not concerned about ecology, you're just looking at, at politics and society and the prospects for peace in the Middle East. And it's hopeless, you know. The problems are too big. The forces arrayed against peace and justice and ecological healing are too powerful. According to what we know of as practical, it's impossible to even have any hope at all. So what I'm saying is that these kind of hard-nosed people they often end up in despair because their worldview that tells them how change happens in the world and therefore what's possible is too small to allow the possibility of healing for this planet. I've personally, though, and many, many other people have as well, you know, had opportunities to witness things or be part of things that didn't fit into the story of separation. Uh, for example, people spontaneously coming together in, you know, say, Gezi Park in Istanbul, hundreds of thousands of people showing up with no planning whatsoever, sending ripples of change out, not that anything dramatic happened politically immediately after that, but it was a game changer, you know, and it didn't happen according to our usual ways of planning things out. So I guess what I'll say is that the possibility that is inherent in believing ourselves not separate from the world outside ourselves. The possibility inherent in, in believing that everything you do somehow changes the fabric of reality, even if it's a small, invisible thing. That is exhilarating, but also scary. It's scary to, to say that we live in a connected, magical world where things happen that we cannot predict or control, and that speak to our creative power. Because if you're not truly separate from all that is, then everything you do is significant and, and has an effect on all that is. You know, you're a powerful being. Like, I think that that's, that's a knowledge that we are kind of born with, but that is beaten out of us in various ways, that we live in this magical, connected, alive universe that has the qualities of a self you know, intelligence, purpose, consciousness even, desires, these qualities we have irrigated to human beings alone for hundreds of years. And to re-inhabit a living universe is a really deep desire of ours. So when something happens or when someone says something that affirms that we live in such a universe, the cynic and to some extent, most people, you know, we, like me included, we, we shy away from that. 
because we don't want to be crushed again. We don't want to be betrayed again because it hurts to be born into that understanding and then to be cast into a world of dead matter where you are alone in the universe, separate from everything else. Like that's a really painful process. So we're afraid of anything that reawakens that knowing, but we also desire it. Now, it almost sounds to me like that's something that happens even as a child. You know, you are exposed to pain, you're exposed to suffering, and that cynic in you is, is exposed, and that cynic in you is given permission to be your whole personality because of that pain you're feeling. I'm wondering what has to happen as a child or as, as you're growing up to keep that cynic from emerging. Is there a way to keep it from emerging? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think that it emerges just because we feel we experience pain and trauma. I mean, pain and trauma is unavoidable in this world. You know, even if you live in a hunter-gatherer society or even if you're a bat, you know, or a frog or something like that, you know, that's part of life. But I think what, what happens in civilization is that our sense of ourselves as powerful creators, our sense of ourselves as unique beings bearing important gifts, our sense of ourselves as being here in order to contribute to something beyond ourselves as the primary purpose of life, that is suppressed in various ways, especially through school, which systematically suppresses all but a very narrow subset of human gifts and potentials. Uh, it also happens through shame-based, guilt-based, conditional approval-based parenting. It happens through all of the conditioning that tells you the purpose of life is to make a living, to survive. You know, anything that destroys our uniqueness, our, our creativity, that cuts us off from relationships to nature and to other people, that make our interbeing a living reality, and, and the social infrastructure of modern society does that. So, like, you know, all of those things make it hard to believe that we do live in an interconnected universe. And as individual parents or people in society, I mean, we can do things to restore the sense of interbeing. I mean, anything that we do from love actually is a way to restore that. It shows people you're not alone in the universe. It's not everyone for themselves. So there's a lot that we can do, but that doesn't mean that it's all about making changes on an interpersonal level. I mean, there's systems level political change, too, that is equally important. We're at this transition point in our society, and the institutions that created this old world that we've been talking about aren't working like they thought they could or like we would want them to. And so many people are recognizing that these institutions are failing. And a lot of people will, will tell me that, well, because corporate power is so strong, because government power is so strong and it's all screwed up in some way, maybe we just need some kind of collapse event to come along and clear these things away. And the crisis will be that moment when our species with its gun to its head can then finally mount the collective will to change these things. Is, is that what will save us or how else could we empower what comes next? Well, I think that crisis is going to be unavoidable. I mean, unless you 
totally disbelieve everything the environmentalists are saying and everything that the social justice workers are saying and so forth, I mean, we're going to have increasingly severe crises. And each one of those crises, I think, is an invitation to wake up from the nightmare and live in a different way. And it's really up to us whether we accept that invitation or not. Can you mark a clear distinction between people who have accepted this kind of mystical, magical mindset and people who have kept their heads down and, and focused on career, do you mark a difference in these people? Do you treat them differently? Do you see them as different kinds of people? Or do you see them as potentials to become something greater? No, you know, I think that everybody is, in one way or another, exploring this new territory. So in some people, it's through their work, and other people, it's through relationships of one kind or another. It could be even a narrow margin of life in which they do it, but I don't think that, you know, there's some people who get it and some people who don't. I think that that even like the most so-called conscious people have their blind spots and their ways in which they are still operating in the old story. So I don't think that it's a vanguard of the enlightened that are that are leading us here. I find that, that pretty much anybody, if I get to know them well enough, has something to teach me about how to be human in a world of interbeing, something that I can only learn through witnessing it in another. On the topic of environmental crises, there's the mainstream story of climate change where greenhouse gases are accumulating in the atmosphere. And so the way to combat climate change is through mitigation policies. And because we haven't enacted those mitigation policies, we need to pursue policies for adaptation now. And one of the ways we can do this is valuing ecosystem services and these types of approaches. How do you see those when reflected against this backdrop of the story of interbeing? I mean, I have kind of mixed views about valuing ecosystem services. I think it can be useful, but we also have to keep in mind that some things are beyond price. So even if you valued, I mean, pick a number, you know, value the ecosystem services of the atmosphere, no matter how many trillions of dollars a price tag you put on it, by doing that, you're implying that if you could make twice that many trillions of dollars by destroying the atmosphere, then you should do it. Monstrosities inevitably result when you try to put a number on the sacred. So I am wary of those kinds of schemes. And, you know, I don't think that we're going to get out of our environmental crisis by applying kind of min-max numerical thinking to CO2 levels or degrees Celsius or anything like that. The mentality of sacrificing everything for an all-important end is the mentality of war and the mentality of money and the mentality of a lot of mainstream religion. In, in war, for example, things like parks, libraries, taking care of an old lady, uh, working with prisoners, working with the handicapped or whatever, like these things are a little bit frivolous, you know, when the enemy is at the gates. And you can say the same thing 
if you want to be a little cynical about it, and you really believe in that we have to devote all of our efforts to reversing climate change, then what about the people who are working with the homeless, you know, and, and helping them get back on their feet? Uh, you, you could say that by doing that, you're actually worsening climate change because you're taking people who are just scavengers and you're making them into productive consumers again. So I, I'm just a little wary of the standard climate change narrative. I think that what we really need to do is to pay attention to the things that are right in front of our faces. So, like, yeah, I'm opposed to most of the same things that people oppose based on carbon emissions, like I'm opposed to fracking, but it's because it destroys the water. You know, I'm opposed to mountaintop removal because it's destroying sacred mountains. I'm opposed to offshore drilling of oil because the spills destroy wildlife and mar the landscape. Same thing with tar sands, you know, same thing with nuclear power plants. I mean, and even though you can't put necessarily a very high value on the sacredness of a mountain or the Albertan tundra or something like that, these things, if we don't value these things, I think our civilization will be doomed. I think that ultimately the cause of climate change, I think CO2 is almost a symptom or a very proximate cause, but the deep causes are pretty much everything. So these kind of technocratic tweaks to make carbon emissions more expensive, I think, yeah, it's a good step, but only a first step. Yeah, that makes sense. The idea is that it's the CO2 emissions are just one of the reasons why climate change is happening and simply doing that quantitative 400 parts per million, we got to reduce it, sequester carbon, et cetera, approach is not going to fix it necessarily because the problem that's causing it is still on the planet. Right. I mean, just my gut feeling, I don't really have any scientific evidence for this, but my gut feeling is that the biggest ecological threat is not CO2, but it's deforestation and the destruction of marine life. Now, these are linked, of course. You know, you can say that climate, that higher temperatures and, and all this stuff is causing deforestation, but it also goes the other direction. And if we had like a complete moratorium on all new logging or, or something like that, like that interferes a lot more directly with a lot of people's profits than simply imposing fees on carbon emissions. You know, it's, it's actually a lot more radical to propose something like that. It's a lot more discomforting, discomforting to business as usual to say, no, you can't build a road. You can't build a parking lot. You know, you, you can't cut down any more virgin forests. You can't dig any more mines. When you actually take it one place at a time, one ecosystem at a time, then you're talking about a much bigger change. I mean, I think that the economic powers that be are pretty comfortable with, you know, a carbon tax or something like that. I mean, some of them aren't, right? Oil companies aren't, but it's not fundamentally revolutionary as it doesn't fundamentally disturb the status quo. I was wondering if you could maybe list a couple of the things that you see in the world right now that kind of fit into the beautiful world idea that you have. Well, I think that what's most hopeful for me is when I just interact with so many young people for whom it's not even a question. Am I going to go into a mainstream career or not? Like, 
Sure, for a lot of them it is a question and it's a struggle, but I, I meet a lot also for whom it's just a no-brainer that they're going to go into permaculture or social justice or something that has no foreseeable financial reward, but that's okay. I mean, part of the story of inner being is that if I contribute, I will be okay. As I give, so shall I receive, because I'm not separate from the world to which I'm giving. So when someone embodies that and inhabits that story, then they won't live their lives from insecurity and fear, at least not economic insecurity and fear. And I'm meeting a lot more people of all ages, but especially young people, for whom that understanding is just second nature. The idea of urgency comes up a lot because so many people look at the magnitude of, say, climate change as one example, as we were just discussing, and they say, you know, this is an extreme, horrific thing that's happening and we have to deal with this problem. Does a revolution happen? At What elements are there as it moves forward? So urgency makes sense when you know what to do. Hurrying and getting it done as fast as possible makes sense when you know what to do, but what if you don't know what to do? What if everything that you've tried has gone nowhere or backfired? What if you've been campaigning to limit carbon emissions for 21 years and things have only gotten worse? Then there might be a time to stop doing the things you've been doing because maybe there's a different way to do things that you'll only know when you've paused and integrated your experience. And I think that, yeah, we need a revolution of some sort. And revolutions, I don't think, can be planned. We can create the conditions for them. And depending on what kind of revolution you want, the work of creating the conditions can be very different. If you want a revolution of anger, where the people rise up and destroy those who are now on top, then you can sow anger in the world. If you want a revolution of love, then you have to do something different. So you can create the conditions for it, but the timing of it is totally unpredictable. I'm thinking again of Gezi Park in Istanbul, this huge uprising. It was sparked by the city's decision to remove two trees from the park. That was the triggering event, and that's what got hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, into the street. You can't predict that, you know? But of course, it wasn't that people actually, you know, were willing to risk everything for the sake of those two trees. Those two trees were a symbol of a lot of other things. So I guess revolution is kind of an example of one of those things that has to happen, but we don't know how to make it happen. And certainly the kind of traditional work of, you know, the Marxist cell and the revolutionary cell and all that kind of stuff certainly hasn't brought revolution to the developed world. And I'm not enough of a leftist scholar to, to know maybe there are examples where, where, you know, the careful organization and, and all that has been instrumental in social change. But it seems to me that it often, like, events take on a life of their own, and you just can't believe that, that things have all of a sudden changed. So our last question for you today is just some advice to our listeners on where to start in bringing this new world into being, whether it's something that they can do internally in their inner world or in their outer world. 
Yeah, I'm becoming not really too comfortable giving advice. In a way, everybody already knows what to do. You know, they don't need me telling them. I guess if I had advice, it would be to recognize that that you have the power to recognize what the next step is for you, the next step of service. And to know that when the time comes to take that step, you'll recognize that. You'll know when it's time. And you'll know what it is. And you'll have the courage to do it. One, one of the things I talk about is ending the war against the self, the struggle to be good, which mirrors the war on nature. If we are, as the old story says, if we are fundamentally selfish beings seeking to maximize self-interest, then yeah, to be good, to be of service, you do have to go to war against yourself. But if that's not human nature, then we can look inside to see what we really want. Or I guess one way to put it is what makes you feel alive? What choice, what next step makes you feel alive? And, and what happens if you trust that? I, I don't know if that's really advice, but it's something I'm exploring. great to have Charles Eisenstein back on our show. We actually haven't spoken with Charles on The Extra Environmentalist since episode number 33, all the way back at the beginning of 2012. So that was basically two years ago. It feels like forever, doesn't it, Justin? (laughs) Yeah, it, it really does. It was really great to have his perspectives on addiction and these stories that our civilization is based on in highlighting those things that we were discussing with Stan Peel because they're both really highlighting these same dynamics in different ways. And people recover from hard drugs all the time. And it can be really depressing in looking at the level of addicted behaviors that you see in society and realizing that so many different behavioral patterns are really addictions to certain emotions or concepts that people perpetuate long after they're even useful. And you could even argue that so many of our societal, financial, and economic arrangements fall into that same category. Talking to Stanton, realizing that in his book, he's detailed all of these different ways that people have the power to overcome these unbelievably difficult chemical uh, addictions and break out of those is really encouraging when you're considering the kind of transition and crisis that Charles Eisenstein is talking about in coming out of the story that we're addicted to. What I really liked about Stanton's perspective is that 
the kind of programs that we have now are really based around systems that were established a really long time ago. And the research has come along that has proved that this is not really the way to get through it in addiction. Stanton often goes into a place and he says, how many people here have stopped smoking on their own? And when people all raise their hand, he goes, this is the actual way that people stop is they decide to stop. They decide that this is the way they're going to do it and they just do it. Stopping an addiction is much like deciding to take out the trash eventually. You know, you have that trash that just builds up and builds up and builds up in your house. And you're like, oh, I'll take it out later. I'll do it to later. I'll stop tomorrow. I'll take it out tomorrow. And when you actually decide to, you know, mail that package or take out the trash or or do the dishes that have been piling up for years and years in your sink, then you do it. And that's the end of that addiction or that's the end of that trash. And I think that's the way it is for many people. It's the way that people live their lives. I know I have a package that's been in my car for weeks and I need to return it. And I just have not had the chance to take it to the post office yet. It sits in my brain. It's like something I have to do, but I, I haven't done it yet. We've constructed a society of instantaneous rewards where we take so much of our cognitive ability and funnel that towards the things that give us the most short-term reward. And everything from, you know, tax law to corporate law to consumer narratives and advertising and aspects of our money system all play in to these social dynamics that prioritize those instantaneous rewards. And we were really talking with Stanton about, you know, smartphones and how it's creating this culture of addiction because, and this is something that we seem to get into a lot on our show is like how, you know, all of the modern technology, even though there's some really great advantages in terms of sharing ideas and communication, it's this unplanned, unknown experiment that's playing out and we have no idea how it's going to end up. You know, will it end up in a total culture of addiction to technology? Technology. I think we're addicted to technology and the concept of technology in many ways, but will we all be completely addicted to, you know, touchscreens in 10 years in the United States? You look at children who have never been away from a touchscreen, children born, you know, three or four or five years ago, who can't remember a time when they didn't have an iPhone hanging out with them or didn't have access to an internet that told them exactly what they needed to know. This kind of addiction to information, this kind of addiction to the technology that is always available at your fingertips, an answer that is always there when you need it, is something that is never before been available to any human in this planet. To have that kind of addiction available is an incredible thing, and we have no idea the direction that that addiction is going to take humanity. The really dark thought that I had as I was listening through our conversation with, with Stanton again in preparing for the episode was in thinking that we've been working so hard as Western civilization to create this you know, surplus and this leisure time, the ability to have, you know, discretionary leisure time is an unbelievable luxury from a historical perspective from the whole narrative of the, you know, like nasty brutish and short lifestyle of Thomas Hobbes that looks back on indigenous culture and sees it as just a constant battle for survival. And so embedded in the very deepest parts of how we see the relationship of our culture in the world is this aim to free ourselves from that nasty, brutish, short life of work. So what we've done is created a lot of time that people have to now spend on entertainment and outside stimuli 
And what if the ultimate result of that, of taking our fossil fuel and energy windfall of geology, is really just creating nothing but a society that's free to become addicted to things? All that free time, as we discussed with Stanton, is basically what's enabling addiction to run rampant in modern society. And we have the breakdown of our connection to competency in any form of economic livelihood. It creates this dual dynamic that results in widespread addiction. So, Justin, you bring up an interesting point about a society that revolves around addiction. And I see in my personal life people who are addicted to things all the time. One idea that kind of sticks out in my mind is the people that I work with who come into work day in, day out, every single day, being there at 8 a.m., leaving there at 5, making sure that they have those 40 hours logged. It's an addiction. It's something that they have to do. You know, I'm sure that if there weren't, they weren't getting paid to be there, then they probably wouldn't show up. But I guess that it goes even further than it becomes an addiction to money. It becomes an addiction to lifestyle. It becomes an addiction to the goods and the services that money and a job and being there for 40 hours a week brings you. Now, this is something that our society has taught us since we were very young to work very hard and to put in all your time because time equals money and money equals happiness. And therefore, if you work all this time and you do everything that you need to do, you'll get that happiness and society will smile on you and everything will be good. So this addiction has been enforced and reinforced, told again and again to people growing up. It has become something that people have no idea they're even doing anymore. So this is a zombie kind of addiction The kind of addiction where you wake up in the morning and then you find yourself at your desk a couple hours later and don't remember where you've been because you just drove into work, had done all the things that you needed to do to to make your way into work, but you've done it so many times that you can't even remember that you've done it. This kind of addiction to this routine is something that I see constantly in my life. One of the threads of our conversation with Charles is that these addictions come to an end point. It's important to have those spaces where people can feel the grief, especially when these addictions of a societal level come to an end, because there's that withdrawal. And what you were just talking about, Seth, is this whole process by which people are very much no longer served by their job, their role in their job, and by the money that they generate, the income that they generate from their job to support their lifestyle. When people come into retirement and reach the end of that, the way that our society in general transitions people into that role is very poor. And so it leaves people at in a state where they lose a lot of meaning and the transition is very hard for so many people. And I feel like we're kind of at that state in general across the world where our story of money and our addiction to money and our addiction to the wealth that was generated from basically the energy that we've had access to over the last century is really reaching a point of diminishing returns. And this takes us to a news item that actually our guest today, Stanton Peel, sent me from CNBC of all places where the headline is, can you be addicted to wealth? And this is something that is encouraging to me 
to see in so many more media outlets, even mainstream ones like, you know, the CNBCs of the world, where people are looking at the lifestyles of, you know, the global elite. And the only way to explain it in so many cases is that it's absolutely an addiction. And the cool thing about the CNBC article that we'll link to in our show notes is that they actually interviewed Stanton Peel to, you know, add in a little bit of commentary on it. But this wealth addiction is absolutely critical to the consumer culture that we live in. And that consumer narrative is slowly dying and it's leaving this empty void where it used to be. How many shows have you watched where the rich guy is just trying to make more money and he's pounding his people? He's like, get me more money. I need to make that deal. It needs to happen now. The guy has like $500 billion in the bank, you know, how much more money do you need? And the only way to describe that is an addiction. It's the getting the more, it's finding the more power, finding the more money so you can die with the most toys. That drive to have more and more and that addiction to a vision of, you know, ever taller skyscrapers and the civilizational development pattern of the 20th century leads to these crazy situations where, you know, the Dubais of the world have these massive, huge buildings. And in one of our recent episodes, you know, we were poking some fun at Dubai by saying, you know, they should hold the 2026 Winter Olympics in those abandoned buildings. Now I see the story on Gizmodo of the world's tallest building may soon be without elevators or air conditioning. <laughs> and so this is something that Jim Kunstler's talked about on our show, where he sees that the reason why these skyscrapers aren't going to be able to be the future of urban development is because the financial arrangements that enable them aren't going to work the same way they used to in the coming years. This specific example of the tall tower in Dubai, there's apparently money problems and no one's completely sure whether it's between the landlord or the property company or the tenants or whatever. But basically, they're having to, you know, cut electricity and elevators and air conditioning. As the story says, there's thousands of dollars of unpaid bills. Well, when your one bedroom apartment costs 50 grand a year and you're paying $25,000 in the service fees, there's a little bit of a discussion to be had there about paying half of the cost of your place every single year yeah. <laughs> just for just to maintain the elevators. Yeah, it, it's really crazy. And the capital intensity of these massive buildings is huge. And there's the one time cost of financing the construction. But then there's the ongoing cost of, you know, you're betting that tenants are going to come in and fill this thing and that they're going to be able to afford whatever rent you need to get from them in order to justify the whole thing. And so it really leads to these kind of Ponzi dynamics, especially in these absurd situations like the Dubai Towers. And that's a very similar dynamic to um, what's going on in China with all their ghost towers and real estate. And now it really looks like the Chinese economy and the Chinese real estate bubble is stalling and facing some serious issues, even to the point where uh, another story that we'll post in our show notes from February the 11th, where China's land market in many cities is facing major drop in volume in sales. And one little month, one short term, you know, number doesn't mean that much. But the really amazing thing about this article is just that it's reporting that 
China's state-owned media is saying that its real estate bubble will collapse. And when the state media, which is basically the mouthpiece of the party, is actually talking about the insane level of possibility of a real estate collapse in China, you know that it's a very real possibility. It's no longer just something that you read about on Doomer blogs or hear as a rumor. When state media is actually saying it, then there's a very real possibility that it's coming. There is some serious stuff going on here when you can't control the economy in a, in, a, in a pegged currency. I saw a number recently stating that a 1% change in China's growth rate changes global demand for resources, materials, goods by about $90 billion. So 1% change in China's growth rate. Jeez. And that's basically getting towards the GDP of small countries is a 1% change in China's growth rate, the kind of impact that has. Yeah, so there's a tiny hiccup in world currencies and 1% change happens and we all fall apart. That's the nature of living in an interconnected global economy of which so much of the driver is addiction to a false notion of wealth and addiction to consumerist ideals and addiction to old civilizational stories, all themes that we've touched on today. Another dynamic that plays out in an interconnected world is the ability to talk on our podcast, put these episodes out into the world, and people from all across the planet write in and donate to our show and are patrons of The Extra Environmentalist. And so we have a few people to thank this week for their donations. People from around the world are recognizing the value of our show. <laughs> <laughs> that that might seem like a little bit of a joke to you. I, I know because all we do is just blather on for long periods of time. But there are people out there actually who think that we're doing a good job. Surprisingly. Surprisingly, exactly. And they're sending us their hard-earned dollars that they have to go to work for every single day and uh, you know sell their crops or sell hot dogs or whatever it is that our listeners do so that we can make these episodes for you. And it's it's absolutely fantastic that people find value enough in it to send us their money. We have repeat donor, Pat, who's been so generous to send us money every month now for the past, what, like three or four months? It's fantastic. Thank you so much, Pat. Yeah, thanks, Pat. And Henrik in Sweden, thank you for donating and for listening from Sweden. We also heard from David out in Colorado who also wants to donate on a regular basis to the show. He wrote along a note that says he would like to donate uh, some dollars every month because he too recognizes the value of the extra environmentalist. And you just think about it. If we had maybe, what, 100 people donating 10 bucks a month, we could totally run this show at a very regular pace. I mean, putting out an episode three or four times a month, I mean, that would be easy and we could make some really, really nice shows. Yeah, even with the donations that we've received already over the last few years, we've gone from being a very amateur operation to having the kind of equipment that we can sound continually more professional. And, you know, our interview today with Stanton, the audio quality wasn't necessarily the best, but, you know, thanks to the donations that we've received, now these in-person interviews, I'm going to be able to actually have a mixer in place to be able to monitor the audio and fix those problems as they come up. And so it means that as more people are in Vancouver or more people are in Durham or wherever it is that we go and we bring our mixer, we can do really good quality recordings. And it's thanks to donations like these that we're able to make those kind of upgrades. So we're really, really appreciative of it. What I think is really exciting about doing this kind of media is that there's no corporate sponsorship at all. We are in total control of our content. Our listeners are able to write in and tell us what they want to hear, what they are interested in. 
And we can provide that without any kind of advertisements or corporate branding or any kind of people trying to sabotage or co-opt the media. It's all by us from our brains to your ears. That's exactly our news cycle there. We don't have any time where we have to go consult with a corporate brand. And I like that a lot. I think that's really powerful. And I think that's the future of media. Yeah. The old days of having to check in with your sponsors before you run a story is so archaic in my mind because you might lose that sponsor's funding for the commercials that they might run and so you can't run a particular story is mind-blowing in today's age of media and so it's very exciting to be on the edge of that and it means we can interview the kinds of people cover the kinds of topics that you're never going to find in other media sources thanks to the regularity of donations that we've been receiving and the great feedback that we get we're really trying to get a show out every other Monday. And so far in 2014, we've been sticking close to that and we're going to keep it going for the foreseeable future. You know, we're not going to taper off anytime soon. And we get great emails too from people all over the world uh, with donations, without donations. One of them from Sebastian in Sweden. And he said that he discovered our show a few months ago and he became interested in all of these different range of topics about our human species and creating a sustainable civilization when he was planting his garden. He was reading about vegetables and one book that was referenced led to another and another and he got very depressed because he was listening to these Alex Jones type people screaming from the the screen and he says unfortunately the people who scream the loudest tend to be the ones that you find first. The lack of experience that a lot of people have in critical thinking allows the Alex Joneses of the world to formulate the whole story for you. And he had lost his hope in finding a form where all of these issues get talked about from a much broader perspective. And then we showed up. And so he really thanks us for all the great shows and ideas and everything that we connect and present. And so it's people like you, Sebastian, in Sweden, who keep us going, planning episodes, scheduling interviews. Another email that we got from David, who actually was one of the donors on this past episode, wrote in to say that he was interested in if any of our guests would be willing to put together some weekly courses or putting together a little bit of an online course kind of thing. He really liked the idea of having a recipe for revolution that we could help spread around the world. If you had somebody who was organizing, who was listening to the show or taking this online course per se, in every town around the country, you could have a lot of political change very quickly if you had these kind of on the ground movers and shakers to help these kind of ideas get going. This would be a really effective way to affect a transition. We here at the Action Environmentalist have thought about this idea for a long time, David, and we've talked with people who we believe that would be a perfect guest for this kind of content. And it is very much something that we've been thinking about. And don't worry, we have not let it drop from our brains yet. It's been on our mind for quite some time doing something like this and we're pioneering all these methods of live video production so we can potentially do something like this in the future and so hopefully we'll be at a point in the next year or two where in addition to a regular podcast we can start doing courses and more intensive kinds of things um, with all the video technology that we're pioneering. So if you too want to listen to more episodes of The Extra Environmentalist or you want to join the conversation there are avenues to do that. All of our back archives are available on iTunes and you can find our show at www.extraenvironmentalist.com to contact us and talk to us. If you want to send us an email, you can throw one over to us at podcast.extraenvironmentalist.com. Find us on lots of social media places like Twitter and Facebook. Just type in our name. You'll find us right away. Listen to us on SoundCloud and Stitcher Radio. 
post our stuff on your friends' Facebook walls or burn CDs. All this stuff is Creative Commons licensed, so it is free to remix and distribute at your pleasure as long as you credit us. And give us a call and let us know what you think. Do you have a story you want to share on any of our show's themes? Do you want to talk about how you're seeing these general trends of this failing narrative of our society playing out in your world? Just give us a call at plus one nine one nine seven zero one nine eight seven two, or you can reach us through Skype at The Extra Environmentalist. We would love to hear any feedback or conversations or beatboxing that you would care to leave for us via recording. So fold up your favorite origami animal and find a pizza parlor that you love. The brain being programmed, programmed to conflict. It has, it is caught in that pattern. Either you think you break it through drugs, through alcohol, through sex, through different forms of discipline, through different forms of handing oneself over to something. Man has tried thousand different ways to escape from this terror of conflict. Philosophers and scientists have said, time is a factor of growth, biologically, linguistically, technologically. Time is necessary. But they have never gone, perhaps some may have, never inquired into the nature of psychological time. And this inquiry into time implies the whole psychological becoming. I am this, but I will be that. I am unhappy, unfulfilled, desperately lonely, but tomorrow will be different. So. Is our brain, which is common to all mankind, is not your brain. It may have certain peculiarities, tendencies, but this brain of mine and yours has evolved through time. It's not my brain. Biologically it is so, it's not my brain. And that brain has been evolving through centuries come to this point through conflict, that our consciousness not ours, but human consciousness, and to realize that it is the human consciousness, you've already broken the pattern of, of individual consciousness. So if one realizes that time is a, fa- is a factor of conflict, then that very perception is action, is decision has taken place. You don't have to decide. The very perception is the action and decision. 
on the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist. Economists these days just don't understand money. They don't really study it at university unless they actually end up doing the banking and finance courses. And what the banking and finance courses teach is this model of the monetary system, which they call the money multiplier. And this is basically a, a story that says if somebody walks into a bank with $100, the bank will keep back $10 and then lend out another 90 So they get taught this story, which is a massive oversimplification of what happens. Well, actually, it's not a simplification. It's just wrong. But when they're taught this, the conclusion that you get from that is that, firstly, the central bank has complete control over how much money there is in the economy because they control this thing called a reserve ratio. And if they say that the ratio is 10% and they only put a billion pounds into the economy, then this story of how the banking system works suggests that the money supply will only expand to 10 billion pounds. And then if they put more money into the economy through the central bank or they change that reserve ratio, they can control how much money is actually in the, the wider economy. But actually, the, the whole model is, is wrong. And it's not based on understanding what banks actually do. It's based on economists sitting in their offices and making assumptions about how it works. So one of the things that we did at Positive Money is we worked with another organization in the UK called the New Economics Foundation to actually research exactly how the system works today. Instead of doing it from the textbooks written by economists who hadn't worked in banking, we actually went to the Bank of England, looked through all of their documents about how the system actually works and compiled all this into a, a book called Where Does Money Come From? Presentation of the 2014 Worst Movie Awards, the Trash Can Oscars, hosted by no one other than the amazing Oscar the Grouch and his longtime friend and conspirator of the elite, Bohemian Grover. Hello and welcome to the 2014 Trash Can Oscars. I'm Oscar the Grouch. I've been kicked out of Austerity Street, so they've moved me here to the damn Oscars. I'm joined by my co-host, Bohemian Grover, who's come all the way from Bohemian Grove to uh, host these stupid, I mean, uh, these great Oscars with me. Hey, Oscar, want to hear a joke about a trash can? Uh, never mind. It's rubbish. Never gets old, does it? We're going to go through Best Picture nominees for the Trash Can Oscars. Yay! These movies are probably the worst movies you've ever seen. The picture quality is terrible, and I really don't even know where they got the cameras from. They think they're just, like, scrawled on pieces of paper or something. I don't don't even know what's happening here. We're going to show you the trailers of each and every movie. First up, we have a movie based on the popular television show House of Cards. This TV show is so popular that they made a movie about it, but they couldn't find a house, 
So they used an apartment building. The damn power just shut off again. I have to walk up the stairs. One man was rising to power. He didn't care who was in the stairwell, who he needed to push off along the way. Get out of my way. I'm trying to get to the penthouse. Get out of here, Grandma. I'm going to the top. Oh, listen here, Sonny. You show respect for your... Ah! gonna turn this power back on if it's the last thing I do and no one's gonna stand in my way. Ah, you stabbed me in the back! Ah. He thought it was a normal blackout, but it was something much bigger. The controls to the power switch are in the penthouse, and the president of the apartment building works there. They say he's crazy. He'll probably kill you if you break in there. I've had enough of this president. It's time that he meets his match. I'm going to take over the power myself. And when he kicked in the door to the penthouse, it got real. I'm taking over this penthouse. You'll have to take that power over the dead body of Sean Connery. The day is mine. Sean Connery. The day is mine. Kevin Bacon. I like bacon. And Bob Saget. I'm sure you all saw the full house. You all ate, you ate it like meatloaf. This summer, the House of Cards is a whole apartment building. Wow, that looks amazing! How could any other movie be better than that one? I don't know, but we have two other nominees. This next one has incredible acting in it. I mean, it's so good, they're calling it the Star Wars of dramas. My name is DeForest, Deforestation Gump. Would you like to cut down a tree? Why would I want to do that, Shunny? Don't know. Seems like a fun thing to do. He couldn't get any other job. All I gotta do is just walk around these forests here and cut down them trees. But then, all the trees got cut down. Oh darn, I seem to run out of me some trees. Guess I'll go for a run. He ran until he found a new forest. Oh wow, looky here, there's a forest here. Guess I'll cut me some more trees. But then, there were no trees anywhere. Climate change is like a box of chocolates. You never know what weather you're going to get. From the directors of Ninjas and Aliens comes a heartwarming story of a man, part of a species, who just wanted to cut down the trees and who wasn't prepared for the consequences. I sure like this axe. It's my axe. It's my favorite axe. It's so sharp. Wow! Even seeing the trailer brought tears to my eyes, Oscar! I can't believe it! There are some real quality movies here tonight, Grover. What's the last one we got here? This one captures the drama of the 2014 drought in California. They call it The Thirsty Games. Grover, hand me that bottle of water. I'm getting mighty thirsty just thinking about this movie. In a world where water has become more valuable than gold, and a single glass of water can be bought for diamonds on the vast market of trade, one girl will rise to fight for the water for her whole district. All of my family's crops can no longer grow. I must enter myself in the annual battle for a bucket of water. The Thirsty Games. One bucket of water, one girl. This summer, tears will fall as all experience H2. Whoa! From directors of the Sharknado trilogy comes a heartwarming tale that'll make your eyes wetter than the state of California. 
The Thirsty Games. Coming to a theater near you. Those trailers were incredible, Oscar. Let's get the drum roll and figure out who wins. And the winner is... What happened, Grover? Ah! We ran out of garbage to power the waste-to-energy facility powering the building! Not again! Because someone was living in the garbage! Uh-oh. Who could that be? Now we'll never be able to read the screen of the iPad that tells us the winner. I guess everybody's a winner! And a loser! And that closes out our 2014 coverage of the Trash Can Oscars! We'll be going to the red carpet footage and what garbage not to wear. Coming next.